How severe is the humanitarian situation in Gaza? How might the struggle for Palestinian self-determination be linked with indigenous sovereignty in Canada? What role might the involvement of activists in the Freedom Flotilla trying to penetrate the Israeli blockade of Gaza be playing in achieving justice for what's being called the world's largest open-air prison? How could supplying hospitals in the region with solar panels contribute significantly to saving lives? On this week's Global Research News Hour, on a week where Canadian activists are departing to take part in the latest attempt to sail into the Gaza Strip and open the port to trade, not aid, for the struggling population, we examine the humanitarian and human rights situation there and examine the perspectives of those involved in trying to make a difference. We'll speak with a steering committee member of the Canadian Boat to Gaza, and a spokesperson for one of the passengers currently boarding the Canadian boat to Gaza, and will speak with a Canadian doctor who has worked in Gaza and is behind the effort to empower Gaza using solar panels. On this week's show, Palestinian Solidarity, Freedom Flotilla 3, and Empowering Gaza with Solar Power. Bringing you the analysis beyond the media headlines, the Global Research News Hour is on the air. Welcome to the Global Research News Hour for the week of June 19th, 2015. I'm series host and producer Michael Welch. The Global Research News Hour is a special radio collaboration between the Center for Research on Globalization and campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg. We seek to provide you with access to analysis of the major issues shaping our world today from thinkers, researchers, and unique political personalities rarely addressed by major media. Our program is available from the Center's website, globalresearch.ca. We can also be heard on the Progressive Radio Network at prn.fm. We'll begin our show with News Notes, a sampling of articles from the Global Research News site. The NATO expansion started in 1999 when U.S. President Bill Clinton brought into NATO the former Warsaw Pact member nations of Czech Republic, Poland, and Hungary. Then, this threatening, if not aggressive, U.S. move expanded even further in 2004 when U.S. President George W. Bush brought into NATO other former Warsaw Pact members, Bulgaria, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, Romania, Slovakia, and Slovenia. Next, in 2009, U.S. President Barack Obama brought into NATO two more former Warsaw Pact nations, Albania and Croatia. Finally, President Obama, in a 2014 very bloody coup d'etat, overthrew the neutralist government of Ukraine and replaced it with a government which is filled with politicians whose political heritage goes back to the pro-Hitler and rabidly anti-Russian political movements in Ukraine during World War II. And these fascist U.S. client politicians have many times spoken of their aim being to join NATO and, with NATO's help, to destroy Russia. America's threat to Russia is very real. That comes from the article, U.S. May Position for a War Against Russia, by Eric Zeus, posted June 17th, originally appearing at Washington's blog. Some 20 Israeli officers and 63 Saudi military men and officials were killed and many others taken captive in a special military operation of Yemen's Ansarullah movement in Amir Khalid Air Base in southern Saudi Arabia, a top security official announced on Wednesday. 
quote, the Ansurallah fighters backed by the Yemeni army hit Amir Khalid Air Base in Kamiz al-Mushait region in southern Saudi Arabia with a Scud missile and several Najm al-Sakeb striking star missiles last week, killing over 20 senior Israeli officers and 63 Saudi military men and capturing 35 others, unquote. Mehdi Nasser al-Bashi told FNA on Wednesday. He mentioned that the Israeli officers were agents of the Mossad spy agency and were in the region to help the Saudi army and said, quote, at the time of the attack, the Israeli officers were working on a plan to attack some regions of Yemen with prohibited Israeli made weapons, unquote. The Saudi army claimed that it had intercepted the Scud by two Patriot missiles, but the Arabic-language Al-Mayadeen news channel showed footage of the missile attack reporting that it had hit the target. That comes from the article, Yemen, Israeli Mossad, and Saudi military killed, taken captive, by FARS news agency, posted June 18th. Fukushima will likely go down in history as the biggest cover-up of the 21st century. Governments and corporations are not leveling with citizens about the risks and dangers. Similarly, truth itself as an ethical standard is at risk of going to shambles as the glue that holds together the trust and belief in society, institutions. Ultimately, this is an example of how societies fail. Tens of thousands of Fukushima residents remain in temporary housing more than four years after the horrific disaster of March 2011. Some areas on the outskirts of Fukushima have officially reopened to former residents, but many of those former residents are reluctant to return home because of widespread distrust of government claims that it is okay and safe. That comes from the article, What's Really Going On at Fukushima? by Robert Hunziker, posted June 17th, originally appearing in Counterpunch. Lunatics in Washington wanted Russia nuked since early Cold War days. They believed nuclear war was inevitable, so better sooner than later while America had a clear advantage. They weren't alone from that time to now. On Tuesday, Vladimir Putin said Russia will act appropriately to U.S.-dominated NATO's encroachment on its borders. He responded to Washington's intent to position heavy weapons and thousands of U.S. combat forces in Eastern European countries, along with its planned offensive missile defense targeting Russia, provocations at a time no threats exist except invented ones. That comes from the article, Putin responds to U.S.-NATO military deployments on Russia's doorstep, by Stephen Lendman, posted June 17th. According to information provided to the New York Times June 13th by U.S. and allied officials, the Pentagon intends to, quote-unquote, pre-position heavy weapons, tanks, guns, etc., sufficient to arm 5,000 soldiers in Lithuania, Latvia, Estonia, Poland, Romania, Bulgaria, and Hungary. And while Washington has made it known that it does not exclude deploying ground-based nuclear missiles in Europe, Kiev has announced that U.S. NATO missile interceptors could be installed in Ukraine, similar to those in Poland and Romania. This ignores the fact that Moscow, as it has already warned, will take countermeasures because the launch pads for the interceptors can also be used to launch nuclear missiles. 
in such a scenario, Trident Juncture 2015, an expression of a strategy of all-out war, is taking place. This is confirmed by the participation of the NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg last week in Austria in the secret meeting of the Bilderberg Group, the same one that the Italian magistrate Ferdinando Imposimato denounced in January 2013 as, quote, one of the leaders of the strategy of tension, unquote. That comes from the article, More U.S.-NATO Wars on the Horizon? NATO launches Trident Juncture 2015, largest military exercise since the end of the Cold War, by Manlio Denucci, posted June 18th, originally appearing in ilmanifesto.info. According to The Economist, China's gross domestic product will surpass that of the United States by 2021. But what are the chances that present trends will continue if Beijing is embroiled in a conflagration with the U.S., a conflagration where the U.S. turns China's trading partners against Beijing like it did with Moscow, a conflagration in which more of China's resources are devoted to national defense rather than economic growth, a conflagration in which oil shipments from the Middle East are interrupted or cut off completely. If any of these things were to happen, China would probably slip into recession, dashing its chances of becoming the world's biggest economy. The point here is that China's rise is not inevitable, as many people seem to think. It depends on things that China cannot completely control, like Washington's provocations in the Spratly Islands, which are designed to slow China's growth by isolating Beijing and drawing it into a confrontation that saps its energy and depletes its resources. That comes from the article, Seven Days in May, U.S. Global Hegemony, Asymmetric Warfare Directed Against China by Mike Whitney, posted June 17th, originally appearing in Counterpunch. These are just a few of the featured articles appearing last week on the Global Research website. Regular visitors to the site are encouraged to send monetary contributions by fax, mail, or online. Just go to globalresearch.ca and click Donate on the menu bar. The territory known as the Gaza Strip, or Gaza, lines the eastern shore of the Mediterranean Sea, bordering Egypt to the southwest and Israel on the east and north. In spite of the disengagement of Israeli forces nearly a decade ago, the United Nations, international human rights organizations, and the majority of governments and legal commentators around the world consider the territory to be occupied. Israeli defense forces maintain control over all airspace and territorial waters and all crossings in and out of Gaza. The situation fostered dependence on Israel for trade, water, sewage, electricity, currency, communication networks, and issuing IDs and permits to enter and leave the territory. Tensions following the election of the Palestinian Islamic organization Hamas to power in Gaza provoked tensions with Israel leading to the 2008 war and a blockade allowing only limited amounts of medical humanitarian aid through. Israel argues that the blockade is necessary in order to prevent Hamas, deemed a terrorist group by many Western countries, from rearming and launching Palestinian rocket attacks. 
and restrictions on access to basic building construction materials, medical supplies, and foodstuffs has depressed the economy and standard of living for Gazans and prompted many to refer to the region as the world's largest open-air prison. Since 2008, a unique effort known as the Freedom Flotilla was conceived to try to break through the blockade and bring much-needed assistance to the struggling Palestinian population there who urgently need it. In this hour, we'll be speaking to activists who have been doing what they can to make a difference for this colonized population. We'll speak first about the latest Freedom Flotilla to Gaza, about to set sail from an undisclosed location in the Mediterranean Sea, and then to one of the doctors behind an initiative to power hospitals in Gaza with solar panels. Well, the Canadian boat to Gaza is joining Freedom Flotilla 3. There have been three occasions where the Freedom Flotilla attempted to break the blockade uh, imposed by Israel on the people of Gaza by sailing the ships into Gaza. And just last year, the Gaza's Ark attempted to sail out of Gaza. Well, this time we have uh, yet another attempt at going through the Israeli blockade, and uh, Freedom Flotilla 3 is in effect. We've got an individual named Bob Lovelace who is going to be partaking in the Freedom Flotilla. And uh, joining us now to uh, to tell us a little bit more about uh, Mr. Lovelace's uh, motivations is a colleague of his at Queen's University. His name is Richard Day. And he joins us uh, from his home just north of Kingston. So, Richard Day, thank you very much for joining us. Yeah, you're welcome. Thanks for uh, giving us a chance to talk about this. Okay. Now, you've also been func- fu- um, functioning as Mr. Lovelace's um, spokesperson, as I understand it. Could you explain to us exactly why he's choosing this approach? Yeah. I, the, the main reason is that um, it's really unclear what's going to happen, um, what's going to play out with with this uh, with this attempt to uh, to bring attention to the blockade, in the past, what has happened is people boats have been boarded, people have been killed, people have been put in jail, people have been been deported. So um, Bob's been on one of these before and has has that experience. So my task is basically to you know talk with with the media, but also um, probably if things go as they've gone in the past, to uh, be a representative with the Canadian government to try and. Uh, to try and get them to uh, to pay attention to the fact that some of their citizens are detained, um, which, uh, given the Canadian government's orientation towards um, anything Israel does these days, um, they're probably not going to be too supportive of that. Mm. Now, I understand that uh, Bob Lovelace has a, is, feels a, a kind of a personal connection to this cause that uh, that maybe other uh, solidarity activists don't feel. Do you, do you think you can explain that to us? Yeah, Bob's a member of the Ardok Algonquin First Nation, um, and he's uh, well known as a defender of his people and of his people's land here in Canada. Um, he's been taking principled stands against injustice, against colonialism for several decades, protecting access to traditional ricing grounds, um, fighting uranium prospecting, um, and has been on the periphery of debates around land claims. Um, so, so with his trip to Gaza, he's expressing solidarity with the decolonization struggles of the Palestinians, and um, as well as, of course, opposition to Israel's uh, illegal occupation and blockade. Um, Richard Day, do you think you can unpack that for us a little bit? Because I think it's an important point. What are some of the uh, the parallels uh, that Mr. Lovelace sees 
between uh, what's happening in Gaza and the state of the indigenous population within uh, Canada? Well, Canada is a, a settler colonial state. It's a place where people like myself, I'm a settler, have come from elsewhere and basically set up shop on someone else's land. Um, and that generally tends to involve getting people off the land. It generally tends to involve cultural uh, genocide, and don't want to use that word too loosely, but I think in the case of the Americas, colonization of the Americas, it applies. Um, it, in, it involves basically getting the, the people and, and everything they stand for and are out of the way, so the land can then be occupied. And there's very, very strong parallels to, uh, as well, to uh, especially Gaza, um, as something very close to a reservation, an Indian reservation, so-called, um, here in Canada. Very, very similar things have been done. Hmm. I'm I'm kind of curious, and I don't know if you've discussed this with Mr. Lovelace, but in terms of like, uh, you know, learning certain kinds of tricks of the trade of colonialism, you know, with, with whether it's uh, police forces or, or uh, you know government policy, and if one learned from the other, or if they just kind of uh, appear spontaneously uh, because they subscribe to certain similar patterns. Any thoughts about that? You're meaning from the side of the the colonizer, or the well, I'm mean, in terms of the uh, yeah, in terms of how the the colonizers in both cases seem to have similar uh, mm. if they have similar kinds of habits. Yeah, well, I wrote a book about this a long time ago, but um, so I, I could be that boring academic right now. But I think basically, you know, this the whole process comes out of a particular time in a you know the fifteen, sixteen, seventeen hundreds and a particular place, Europe. Um, you know, the, this is the beginning of so-called saltwater colonialism. If you, if you think about empires uh, prior to that time, well, as far as we know, anyway, they would tend to, to, to be that, you know, some big warlord arises somewhere and then moves out by land to conquer most of a continent or most of a portion of a continent. And Europe invented this thing of getting in boats and going somewhere else and doing that same kind of thing. Settler colonialism was an invention of Europeans, and the reason that it looks similar all over the world is that Europeans sailed all over the world and brought this invention with them. So the strategies, the tactics, the, the way of doing this thing um, it was, was disseminated. And, um, and if it's not an abuse of the word work, then um, it worked really well. And so it has continued to be used up to the present day. Okay. Now, Bob uh, Lovelace was on the Freedom Flotilla previously. That's correct. Now, do you know, are you privy to any experiences he may have had from the previously that may have affected his outlook on, or his perspective on this in any way? I, I know that he has spoken a lot about feeling the really intense violence of the agents of the Israeli state and... Um, and feeling that violence in a context of, you know, what is really clearly, obviously, in every way, peaceful civil disobedience. And feeling a, a, what, you know, a very militarized response to that. And, um, and having been through you know, that sort of thing before, having been to jail, having been involved in, you know, frontline work in Canada, um, that's something that for him means that he needs to get back there and put himself on the line again. He needs to not be scared away by that because that's one of the things that 
seems clear that the Israeli state is is trying to do. It calls people who are doing these sorts of things terrorists, which always ups the ante. They're uh, anti-Semitic. I'm apparently anti-Semitic. The emails are already coming in on a fairly regular basis. So there's there's this real criminalization, demonization, um, basically a lot of hatred put towards anyone who dares to uh, stand up to these policies of the Israeli state, and he doesn't want to be scared away by that. He's going to get back there. Someone has to take a stand. He's one of the ones who's going to do it. Mm. I'm wondering then how his family and friends and, and colleagues like yourself mm-hmm. uh, have responded to his decision to participate in this. Yeah, well, one of the ways I responded was to agree to support in whatever ways I can. My my partner and I have helped, you know, a bit towards uh, you know the cost of this, as have a lot of people who know Bob. Um, doing what I'm doing right now is is a contribution. I would say pretty much everybody is, just thinks this is Bob, this is who he is, and we're actually um, really proud of him, really happy for him that he's got the guts to to do what he feels he needs to do, because that's a pretty rare thing, actually, in all places and times, I find. Richard Day, what does Bob anticipate? Uh, uh, you know, what, what does he expect will come of this action? There, there are two things uh, that I want to talk about. One is material, and the one of the goals here is to deliver aid um, to people in Gaza, humanitarian aid, medical supplies, and so on. And the other goal, you mentioned uh, the um, Gaza Ark. Um, there are still a, there's still a big pile of um, local craft-produced um, materials uh, that need to be brought out um, of Gaza. So there's this double material goal. Um, and there's also a really important set of symbolic goals, um, one of them being to bring attention, to return attention to the fact that this blockade is going on. And there's, there's a problem, of course, with pro- uh, anything that persists as an issue for too long. It, it falls off everyone's attention. There's a new thing going on. Um, that's more exciting. We get fatigued with these kinds of things. And, and so there's a necessity to keep going back and, and basically reminding everyone in the world, hey, you know, this is happening. It's still illegal. It's still horrific. After the war last summer, it, it's even worse than it ever has been. Um, so that that's uh, one of the symbolic goals. And another one, particularly as a Canadian, I mentioned this a little bit earlier, is that the Harper government is very, very much in favor of anything that the Israeli state ever says or does, to the point some of us think of basically irrationality. And it's important that people outside of Canada know that Stephen Harper does not remotely speak for all Canadians, that his... His stance is uh, his stance. He happens to have control of the state, but he definitely doesn't have control of all of our minds and bodies. And there are a lot of us willing to stand up and speak up against those policies. Richard Day is a colleague and spokesperson for Bob Lovelace, one of the individuals who will be setting sail on Freedom Flotilla 3. Richard Day, thank you very much for joining us. You're welcome. Thank you. The following is a clip from Robert Lovelace, recorded about a week before he left Canada to join the Freedom Flotilla to Gaza. My name is Robert Lovelace, member of the Ardoch Algonquin First Nation, and also a professor at Queen's University. I'll explain to you why the people of Gaza and Palestine have become so important to me. 
and why I support their struggle for liberation and against the oppression that they experience under settler colonialism the way our ancestors did. You see, our history and the history of other peoples who have been colonized is very much the same. There are many similar intersections. Colonialism is not a novel experience. It's experienced by many peoples around the world. Our land was taken over by settlers only 200 years ago. And during that time, our people were marginalized. They lost their ability to speak their own language. They lost their ability to use the land in productive and sustainable ways. Our ancestors had to migrate to other places for protection and to make a living. And we became a minority in our own homeland. We experienced poverty and mental health issues. Those who survived either knuckled under or became a culture of resistance. The people of Palestine have also confronted settler colonialism. And this is why I see the strong similarities between what has happened to our ancestors, to us, and to the Palestinian people. In a week or so, I'll be traveling to the Eastern Mediterranean to join Freedom Flotilla 3. The reason I'm joining the flotilla for the third time and have been a supporter of challenging the illegal blockade of Gaza by Israel is because as an Aboriginal person I know that our liberation, the end of our oppression, is tied with everyone's oppression, with indigenous people around the world. And if I can do my bit, my little bit, to help with the global issues, then I'll be helping people here at home. I am so fortunate to live here in a forest on lands that our ancestors uh, cultivated and used in a sustainable way. But I know that I can't live well because others suffer. And therefore I have to take action. My action at home has been to protect the land and the water from exploitation, from additional settlements, from mining, from taking our wild rice away. But it can't just be here. We have a responsibility to our brothers and sisters in humanity who live all over this world and who are, like us, have fought and continue to fight colonialism. The people of Gaza have a right to build an economy. They have a right to fish in the sea. They have a right to use international waters. They have a right to explore for mineral resources in offshore 
areas of their of their territory. They have a right to garden and to farm in the soil of their homeland. No one has the right to take that away from them. And they have the right to raise children free of poverty, free of fear, and able to make good relations with their neighbors. The Creator has given us a beautiful creation to live within and to use and sustain ourselves. And we need to find a way to live in peace with other people and with the other creatures that live in this world with us that are so important to our livelihoods and our way of life. Humanity is like a tree. It has a strong, strong trunk that holds many branches. All of us share qualities of life. We all have language and song and thought and feelings. And our branches represent the cultures that are part of our environments in which we live. There's enough sunshine for every branch. I hope you can do your part in making sure that the Palestinian people have the sunlight that they need and the space to grow. You can find out more about Robert Lovelace and stay updated on his journey by visiting his Facebook page, Bob Lovelace Decolonization Blog. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, broadcast out of Winnipeg on campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM and on the Progressive Radio Network at prn.fm. We are also podcast on the website globalresearch.ca. Joining us now to talk more about the Freedom Flotilla 3 and uh, Canada's uh, participation in it is a a steering committee member for the Canadian Boat to Gaza, and uh, he's also a past participant in the Freedom Flotilla. His name is David Heap. He joins us from London. How are you doing, David? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me on the show. For sure. Now, uh, Freedom Flotilla 3... Do you want to uh, remind our listeners what inspired this particular form of uh, solidarity action with the people of Gaza? So going back to 2008, the year after the uh, total blockade was was decreed, right? Um, there, there have been progressive closures on Palestinian freedom of movement, especially in Palestinians in Gaza since about 1990 or 91. Um, but the the most radical loss of freedom of uh, movement came in 2007. There was a civil society response in 2008 of uh, five voyages that actually sailed and reached Gaza from small boats that reached Gaza up until the end of 2008. Uh, between 2000 in 2009, there were a number of attempts that were attacked. So in 2010, the decision was to sail with multiple boats. So that was the first freedom flotilla. Uh, the one that people probably would remember, uh, the name Mavi Marmara, perhaps, the, uh, the boat, the very large, uh, boat, uh, 
from Turkey that uh, was attacked uh, by uh, Israeli occupation force commandos, uh, which resulted in 10 deaths and uh, dozens of injuries. The Canadian parts, there were a couple of Canadians there at that time, uh, but the Canadian boat ro- arose from that the following year. We actually, right after the, the, uh, the, the attack on the Mavi and the rest of the first flotilla, uh, we began organizing to uh, to have a, can- a boat in the in the next in the second flotilla in 2011 and raise funds and eventually the Tahrir um, sailed as tried to sail as part of the Freedom Flotilla in 2011 in this time of year four years ago in in June and July uh, we were stopped by the Greek Coast Guard because um, the, the Israeli occupation had sort of outsourced their blockade from Palestinian waters off Gaza to European ports so we were stopped. Uh, in our case, just outside of the por- a port in Crete. Uh, we then sailed with a smaller group of people in, in November 2011, the Canadian boat together with the uh, Irish boat, the Searsha. So the Tahrir and the Searsha sailed in 2011. The 2012, uh, the, a boat started from Sweden, sailed the Estelle, and in the last leg of that, there was um, a Canadian former uh, member of Parliament, uh, Jim Manley, uh, on board with that group. So in 12, 13 Beginning of 2014, we had a, a different project that still challenged the blockade with direct action, but from the inside out, we were working on rebuilding um, a boat we called Gaza's Ark in Gaza to challenge the blockade, sailing out from the port of Gaza with export goods from the Palestinian economy. Uh, that boat was ready to sail, but uh, in last summer, uh, and had export contracts worth more than uh, $25,000 from purchasers around the world. Uh, but was shelled during the the assault on Gaza last summer and burned. So we're back to uh, the third flotilla sailing from outside in again uh, with a variety of boats. Um, A boat again left left Sweden last month and has visited a number of European ports and is currently in port in Sicily. And it will be joined by at least two others uh, from other Mediterranean ports in the coming days. Is there anything about Freedom Flotilla 3 that's uh, maybe different? Does it have a specific mission this time that differentiates well, it from previous flotillas? I think Bob Lovelace's uh, participation, and, and I hope you can listen to some of the interviews that he did before he traveled, uh, really highlights the fact that this is a, a, a mission about um, about indigenous people's rights. So Bob makes the, the, the parallels between uh, what he calls Gaza, the largest Indian reservation in the world, and the rights that have been taken away from uh, indigenous peoples in Turtle Island by settler colonialism. So I think that linkage is particularly important. The fact that we're reaching out, we're more international than ever. We have representatives from South Africa and New Zealand on board. Uh, so it's really, if anything, it's accentuating the, the internationalism, but also the anti-colonial flavor. That uh, For Canadians, we need to know that uh, when we sail against the blockade of Gaza and for Palestinian uh, right to freedom of movement, we're also sailing against uh, the Harper government's settler colonial um, approach in this country to the indigenous peoples of, of where we live. So making those linkages more clear uh, is uh, part of what we're doing because our political work really, even though the boats sail in the eastern Mediterranean, our political work is here at home uh, in Canada. Yeah. Now, considering that the history uh, just within the uh, the this uh, the Freedom Flotilla uh, background, were there any lessons that has been learned by the movement to, from those previous encounters? 
Um, to be flexible, I think, is, is important. Uh, in 2000, June 2011, we had very large uh, gatherings in Athens and press conferences, which were great. I mean, we had Bob Lovelace together with Alice Walker from the U.S. boat for the Gaza and uh, uh, um, Henrik Mankel from, um, the, from Scandinavia, you know, very, very important international figures. But, of course, if you get everybody together in very public acts before you sail, it makes it easier to stop you stop us, right? So later in 2011, we were a little bit more discreet about our departure until we were in international waters. Um, you know, we haven't announced yet where, where the other boats will join um, will join the one that's uh, already in Palermo, where, where they will meet up. Uh, but, you know, we, we, we have this um, uh, dynamic between do, as being as public as possible, but also uh, keeping information a reasonable amount of information confidential until we're ready to release it. So, but also being flexible about strategies and not always doing the same things. So we, uh, you know, we, we don't have, um, we don't have the resources of, uh, of the state that's trying to block us and maintain their, their occupation, uh, of Palestine, but we do have, uh, the goodwill of, uh, civil society movements throughout the world, uh, working on our side. Is there anything noteworthy about how elected politicians responded to the treatment of Canadians in past flotillas? Well, I think the noteworthy thing that people in Canada need to know is that we're really lagging behind the response in, in Europe. Uh, in Canada, we were able to have Jim Manley, as I said, a former uh, New Democrat MP uh, on board. Uh, in Europe, it's quite normal for sitting MPs from a number of European countries to participate in the vote, uh, in the missions, and even if, when they're on board or not on board, for them to actively and publicly support what's going on. Uh, in Canada, we have exactly three, the full caucus of Quebec Solidaire in, in Quebec, in the National Assembly of Quebec, uh, has come out of support. In fact, they, they had a sta statement yesterday when our fourth delegate left Quebec City, um, Christian Martel, a retired trade unionist from Quebec City, left yesterday, and Quebec Solidaire was there um, speaking in support of the flotilla. Apart from that, <laughs> it's pretty well a desert in North America as far as elected politicians. So... Um, that's that's an important contrast because uh, I would say in Europe the movement has moved farther. Uh, I don't really blame the politicians. You know, I engage with them all the time. But um, the important thing to move is civil society. It's not politicians. When the people lead, eventually the leaders will follow. So what we're really uh, working on here is moving civil society, trade unionists, peace groups, faith groups, campus groups, and so forth, uh, such that um, consensus among civil society groups in the population realize that this isn't a matter that is, we can leave to politicians to decide, right? We need to make our demands uh, repeatedly and publicly uh, in such a way that eventually it becomes uh, impossible for politicians to ignore. Um, another lesson from 2011, and I think this is an important one, uh, Alice Walker at that press conference in, in Athens made a very important point, which is that for her, and this is somebody who's, you know, she's got half a century of experience in the civil rights movement in the States, um, she's made the comparison by saying that the, the movement to end the blockade of Gaza is like the freedom rights of our time. And for your listeners who might not remember, the Freedom Rides in the early 1960s, where people went to the southern U.S. to act in, in uh, solidarity, stand in solidarity with African Americans fighting segregation. Um, the important thing about that is to remember that the real dangers and the real um, 
heroes of this, in that case, were the African-Americans who fought segregation every day. And in our case, you know, the Palestinians who go out and plant their fields and fish their, their waters or try to fish their waters and feed their families and have an independent uh, a sovereign economy are the real heroes. We get to stand with them for a brief period of time and hopefully draw some of the world's attention to them. Um, but the other thing is that people went back year after year after year. There wasn't any easy, fast successes with the freedom rides or with the uh, boycotts and with the um, you know the bus boycott in Selma or the marches from Selma to Montgomery in Alabama. They got beat up violently many times for the rainy breakthrough. So I think the idea that people say, "Oh well, the flotilla is done now." No, our work isn't done until Palestinians have freedom of movement. Just as people continued to go on the freedom rides and continued to go on the marches against segregation uh, until victory was achieved. I guess I have one last question. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, considering you yourself were detained on mm-hmm. uh, one of these uh, flotilla ships, I'm curious to know, because you don't strike me as being a babe in the woods. Uh, I was wondering mm-hmm. if there was anything that surprised you personally about the way the Israeli military and governing forces dealt with you. Um, <laughs> nothing surprises me when you're dealing with an unaccountable rogue state, right? Uh, the, the, Israel does what, and the Israeli forces do what they get away with, and they know they'll get away with it because governments like ours give them carte blanche. They're never held accountable by, um, by you know, the Harper government in Canada or other world governments. So they will continue to get away with things uh, like, you know, uh, seizing a, an international civilian ship in international waters with a course towards Palestinian waters, right? It's going nowhere near Israeli waters. Uh, it's going right by Israeli waters, not, not even entering or directing itself towards Israeli waters. And yet they say they're defending Israeli waters, right? So no other state in the world today would get away with doing that. They get away with it because our government allows it, among others, right? Um, so I think where people should be shocked is not the fact that the Israelis steal international boats, inter- kidnap international uh, citizens. They do this all the time to Palestinians. They use tasers on us. Well, they use tasers and much worse on Palestinians week in, week out. That they do this is not the shocking thing, that our governments in our name allow them to get away with it. That's what we should be shocked about, and that's what we should be changing in our countries. David Heap is a steering committee member for the Canadian Boat to Gaza contingent of the Freedom Flotilla 3 and also a past participant in the Freedom Flotilla. David Heap, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me on the show. I look forward to speaking to you again sometime. For sure. Take care. Take care. Bye. Empower Gaza is a joint initiative involving the United Nations Development Program and Islamic Relief Canada to provide a renewable, reliable source of energy for intensive care units, operating rooms, and emergency departments in the besieged Palestinian territory of Gaza. Dr. Benjamin Thompson is one of the physicians behind the project. He has also been to Gaza and conducted his um, as, as operated there as a physician, he joins us now from Kingston. Hello, Dr. Thompson. Welcome for jo- help. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me, Michael. Okay, now uh, can you tell us a little bit more about this initiative? It, it involves uh, using solar panels to power hospitals, correct? 
Yes, you know, um, having been to Gaza, working in the healthcare sector for several years now, there's a few major challenges that the healthcare workers in Gaza face on a daily basis, and none is more pronounced than the energy blackouts, which affect every part of the infrastructure in the healthcare sector. So whether you're working in the emergency room with no lights and unable to examine your patients or unable to uh, work in the operating room without using a cell phone to illuminate a patient, whether it's that a respirator in the intensive care unit stops because the backup generators fail, it affects every critical component of the hospital. And so, hello? Hello, yeah, go ahead. Oh, sorry. So uh, we, having been to Gaza, we really wanted to find a long-term sustainable solution to the energy crisis that uh, essentially results in people's lives being lost in hospitals in Gaza. So in conjunction with the healthcare workers on the ground, we devised a program which would install solar energy uh, to supply all the critical infrastructure of hospitals in Gaza. So we know it works. And we know it works because, in fact, the Al-Shifa Hospital, which is one of the major hospitals in Gaza City, already has a solar project. And since that solar project has been initiated, there has not been one blackout in the Al-Shifa Hospital. So we know it works. So it wasn't so much whether it works. It's how do we get it to expand to the other major hospitals in Gaza so we can save lives and end blackouts in the hospitals. So um, Dr. Lubani and myself have been going to Gaza for several years now. Um, and when we uh, worked together with the healthcare workers in Gaza, we created a program that would set up solar power in the uh, major hospitals in Gaza. Um, the United Nations Development Program signed on almost immediately. Uh, they recognized the critical nature of this project. Islamic Relief Canada signed up as the charitable sponsor in Canada, um, and we're uh, running an online Indiegogo campaign to raise $200,000 uh, over the period of 60 days. We've almost reached our goal. We're almost at $170,000 with, uh, with about a, just over a week left, um, and that will supply one of the hospitals. That will supply one of the hospitals. And and we're hoping to continue raising money until all the major hospitals in, in Gaza are, are funded and supplied with solar energy. May I ask, where, the, uh, where, where do the solar panels themselves come from? Are they, they brought in? Are they assembled uh, in Gaza? And, and who puts them up on the roofs? Like, who, who all is involved in this? Yeah, so the, the on-the-ground logistics partner is the United Nations Development Programme. Um, they have been involved in one project already in Gaza, um, which was successfully installed solar power at one of the hospitals in Gaza. Uh, with regards to the specifics of what type of panels and the engineering uh, specifics, we have actually been involved with uh, Mr. Ani Naim, who is the head engineer in Gaza for the electrical sector. And uh, in conjunction with Mr. Ani, we've, we've created a, um, uh, a local system that will work well with the pre-existing infrastructure and will meet the needs of the healthcare workers on the ground. Um, and with regards to how everything gets in and gets out, that's really um, uh, a, 
administrative issue, which the United Nations Development Program, uh, thankfully, is involved in, and they have done this before, and they're and they're doing it for all of our all of our hospitals that we're going to be supplying in the Empower Gaza campaign. Okay, now I wonder if I could just get you to back up a little bit because you were talking about from from your own experience about the difficulties of of working in an, in a situation where electrical power is not reliable. I, I just well, I'm curious: are there any things that uh, we we tend to take for granted uh, here that maybe some simple things even that that uh, electrical power enables that are absolutely critical? I mean, obviously, you don't want to be operating in the dark, but I mean, other sorts of uh, obstacles created by that lack of reliable power? Well, you know, I, I think it's important that we reinforce the fact that the electrical, the electricity crisis in Gaza um, expands to all parts of life. So we're not talking just about hospitals. We're talking about in people's homes, in people's businesses, um, on the roads where there's really no traffic lights. Um, the, uh, the region is dependent almost entirely on fuel and diesel for their electrical needs, uh, simply because the blackouts do last, in general, a minimum of 16 hours a day, and that's in all sectors. Now, my experiences as a physician, and as such, I wanted to focus our efforts from a humanitarian side on the hospitals. And so within the hospitals, really everything requires power, whether you're talking about running a blood test so you know what someone's blood count is or someone's kidney or liver function is doing, that's reliant on on energy. Um, Whether you're running a dialysis machine or an operating room or an intensive care unit or an emergency room, all of those things run on electricity. And when electricity fails, those critical areas no longer function. It's that simple. So when someone's respirator turns off, that person dies. When someone is reliant on um, three weekly treatments of hemodialysis treatments because their kidneys have failed, when that's no longer available, that patient dies. When someone needs emergency surgery, but we can't see in the operating room, that person dies. So it's really a very, very, it's really not complicated at all electricity uh, is absolutely crucial or people die. It's really that simple. Um, now, as it turns out, we're very lucky because um, we've, we're following a project that has already been a great success. And if you look at um, Haiti, Nepal, India, um, even within Gaza, there's successful solar energy projects that have ended blackouts in the hospitals in which they've been installed. Um, and there's absolutely no doubt that that saves lives. So it's really not a matter of if it saves lives. It's really not even a matter of how it saves lives. How it saves lives is simple. You are absolutely critically requiring um, electricity to function to function a healthcare uh, facility. So there's no doubt it works. The the major issue for Empower Gaza is expanding it so that we can we can supply more hospitals with it to save more lives. Mm-hmm. Now, I, uh, that certainly, I mean, I could add a bit of an editorial comment. It certainly sounds like a, a, a wonderful initiative, though I'm, the fact is, it seems to me that a lot of the, 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 with the electrical grid and the, the shattered infrastructure, the, it's Israeli government or Israeli defense forces attacks that are principally responsible 
for that. So you could talk about you know, the, the the lives that are being compromised as, as secondary effects from that. And it seems to me that uh, I mean, I just uh, recently saw an article talking about. Uh, how a, a clinic was uh, attacked because it was claimed that it was providing some sort of uh, support for Hamas. And you've probably heard this argument about how, you know, the uh, uh, human shields and, and whatnot. And I don't know, is it an insignificant consideration that um, that certain facilities could provide targets for uh, the next Israeli attack? I mean, is that something that... Uh, that might in some, on some level complicate your efforts? So there's no doubt that the, um, there are some very complicated politics in the region. Um, I don't claim to be a politician. Um, I do openly admit that I'm a physician and I'm interested in the humanitarian needs in Gaza. And there's absolutely no doubt whatsoever that there is a humanitarian crisis. There's no doubt that the international players, the government, and even some non-government organizations that have committed to um, uh, provide assistance in light of this humanitarian crisis, most of these groups have failed to do so. And the majority of the commitments that have been provided, um, you know, verbally, the, the money just hasn't come in and uh, the commitments just have not been fulfilled. So you're absolutely right. Um, up, up until, you know, so with regards to the first question, are there political issues? Yes, there absolutely are very complicated political issues in the region. The, the nice thing about this project, the Empower Gaza project, is a very clean one. So it is not a political project. We are not uh, really concerned about Israel versus Palestine. We're not concerned about Hamas versus Fatah. We really don't care. What we're really interested in is the humanitarian crisis and the fact that because of the humanitarian crisis, people in Gaza are dying. And this is something that is readily fixable. There's a solution that um, is available. Um, and uh, it, it is something that we, we are hoping to provide with the Empower Gaza campaign. So that that's... Uh, that's how we're looking at it. I, I must admit I'm not a politician. <laughs> and because I'm not a politician, I, I don't claim to know politically what the answers are to, to what your question is. But I know that from a humanitarian perspective, there's absolutely no doubt what the solution is. It's solar energy. And that's something that the healthcare workers in Gaza have said to us. And from our own experience working in the Gaza healthcare system, it's absolutely no doubt that it will save lives. Now, uh, as we're having this conversation, I notice there's a little over a week left in your fundraising drive to get your, to your $200,000 goal. Is there anything you'd like to share with our listeners about how they can get involved in helping out? Absolutely. So there's really a number of ways in which um, Empower Gaza supporters can become involved. There's a website um, which can be accessed at empowergaza.org. That's E-M-P-O-W-E-R-G-A-Z-A dot O-R-G. And that will immediately link to the um, Indiegogo campaign, which is raising money for one hospital. And uh, all those funds will go to the Islamic Relief Canada and then subsequently to the United Nations Development Program. That's one way in which you can get involved. The other alternative is if... Um, you would like to attend one of the um, events. There are events in Michigan as well as in Mississauga 
as well as in Halifax, the details of each of those events, uh, which will take place in the next um, eight days. That can be found at, again, the EmpowerGaza.org site. Um, as well, um, we have an email, info at EmpowerGaza.org. And any questions, uh, please feel free to contact us. We're, we, we're elated that uh, over 800 people have donated to this campaign, but even more people um, have been involved supporting us in other ways. And we're always open to, to new ideas about how we can um, uh, overcome the humanitarian crisis in, in Gaza. We're always open to, to new thoughts and suggestions. Dr. Benjamin Thompson, thank you very much for uh, sharing this information with us, and good luck with your campaign. Thank you so much, Michael. Dr. Benjamin Thompson is uh, one of the three physicians backing the uh, Empower Gaza initiative. An update. As of this broadcast, Bob Lovelace left a message stating he was on board the Swedish-flagged Marianne and had taken on the role of nonviolence trainer. He spoke highly of the crew and the support they were receiving, and that they were about to set sail. Stay updated on his movements by visiting his Facebook page, Bob Lovelace Decolonization Blog. We've come to the end of the Global Research News Hour for this week. We'd like to thank Tyler Levitan of Independent Jewish Voices for his assistance in tracking down interviews this week and supplying us with the audio from Bob Lovelace's video. We'd also like to wish all the passengers aboard the Freedom Flotilla ships a safe and successful journey. The Global Research News Hour airs on CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg every Friday at 1 p.m. Central Time, as well as on different times on partner radio stations across Canada and the United States, including the Progressive Radio Network at prn.fm. Our shows are podcast at globalresearch.ca. To leave feedback, email globalresearchnewshour at gmail.com. We'll close the show now with a song by the Arabic-Palestinian rap band DAM. It's called Min Erhabi, which means, Who's the Terrorist? The song asks the world to question who is the terrorist when the majority of victims of Israeli aggression in Palestine are women and children. I'm series host and producer Michael Welch. Join us again next week. Palestinian rights. I think they're the most terrorized, or at least with the Iraqi people, they're the most terrorized people on earth and have been for so many years. Practically every Palestinian lives in constant harassment, threat of violence, humiliation, in that way for a long, long time. مين الهابي انا ارهابي كيف ارهابي وانا عايش ببلادي مين الهابي انت ارهابي ماكلني وانا عايش ببلادي قاتلني زي ما تلت اجدادي اجل الخنون عرصادي ما انت يا عدو بتلعب دور الشاهد المحامي والقاضي علي قاضي نهاية بادي حلمك انقل فوق معنى قلية حلمك لا قلية تصير بالمقابر اختارية ديمقراطية والله انكم نتية كفر مغتصبتون نفس العربية هبلت ولدت ولا تسمو عملية انفجارية وهنا ديت نرهبية يعني ضربتني وباكيت سبعتني واشتكيت لما ذكرتك انك بدين مصيت وحكيت مانتو بتخلوا ولا بصغار يلمحجار مالهم مش اهل هيدبوهم بالدار ايش كنو نسيت انو سلاحك ضب الاهل تحت الحجار وقال لأ لما وجع الفار بتناديني ارهابي مين ارهابي انا ارهابي كيف ارهابي وانا عايش في بلادي مين ارهابي انت ارهابي ما 
هيشر مهابي عشان دمي مش هادي حامي عشان رفع راسه وارض بلادي قتلوا حبايبي انا لحالي اهلي تشردوا راح اضلي انادي انا مش ضد السلام السلام ضدي علي بده يهدي تراثي بده يمحي واللي بيحكي كلمه بشد وراه همه بيكون زلمه